0: Welcome back. It's been a bit since the last video, but this and the next one should follow in quick succession to complete our discussion of Lewis' miracles. Today in my penultimate video, I'll work through chapter 14, The Grand Miracle, which is the largest chapter in the book. Last time, Lewis argued that the criterion by which we might decide if a particular miracle claim is probable is the criterion of fittingness. We already know that miracles are metaphysically possible on philosophical grounds, but how do we decide about any particular miracle claims? Lewis' criterion of fittingness is something he will expand upon precisely as he uses it over the next three chapters. Uh, That is, it it is in the exercise of making judgments about fittingness that we will discover the sort of thing Lewis has in mind by the term. In this particular case, Lewis discusses the grand miracle, Uh, the miracle of the Incarnation. And so Lewis writes, quote, The central miracle asserted by Christians is the Incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits it or results from this. Just as every natural event is the manifestation at a particular place and moment of nature's total character, so every particular Christian miracle manifests at a particular place and moment the character and significance of the Incarnation. There is no question in Christianity of arbitrary interferences just scattered about. It relates not to a series of disconnected raids on nature, but the various steps of a strategically coherent invasion, an invasion which intends complete conquest and occupation. The fitness and therefore credibility of the particular miracles depends upon their relationship to the grand miracle all discussion of them in isolation is futile, end quote. Lewis' strategy here is admittedly a tad peculiar. In a way, he he has made things a bit difficult for himself. If he cannot show the fittingness of the incarnation, then all other Christian miracle claims fall by the wayside. Or perhaps we could put it this way, if the incarnation is unfitting, then all other miracle claims are unfitting by extension. And Lewis immediately goes on to admit that it's a bit difficult to come up with a standard by which the incarnation could be judged for its fittingness. And so he goes on then to say, quote, If the thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. Since it happened only once, it is by Hume's standards infinitely improbable. But then the whole history of the earth has also happened only once. Is it therefore incredible? hence the difficulty which weighs upon the Christian and atheist alike of estimating the probability of the incarnation. It is like asking whether the existence of nature herself is intrinsically probable, end quote. So what are we to do? Uh, Lewis has an interesting suggestion here. Uh, imagine a situation in which we possessed a, a partial manuscript of a play or a musical or, or novel from a famous author, and let us say that someone discovered the potentially missing portion of that manuscript play or piece of music and was trying to discern its authenticity. There's several ways in which you'd do that, uh, you know, to ask, is this a forgery or does it belong to the author? But, But one of the ways you'd answer it is that you try to ascertain how the content of the new discovery relates to what is already known to be from the author. And so what Lewis asks us to imagine is a scenario in which the newly discovered manuscript actually resolves tensions in the play, illuminates its various parts precisely by being the crucial missing piece. One might say that the, the content of man's knowledge by analogy is, is kind of like a, a negative outline that is then filled in with the positive content of divine revelation, especially in the incarnation, God with us, com- God coming to man as man. Uh, similarly, when we, you know, when we make a puzzle. We have a sense when we're, you know, we make this puzzle and there's a missing piece, say here. We have a sense of the shape and content of the piece that is missing by what surrounds it. And it is precisely in knowing natural revelation in history and civilization that we come to see the fittingness of the incarnation more clearly. Uh, How does Lewis try to show that the Incarnation, though, plays this role? On on the one hand, the very theme of the Incarnation itself is consonant with the theme that Lewis has been demonstrating throughout this book, that the supernatural invades the natural. The Incarnation, in such a case, is simply the paradigmatic case which all other invasions of the supernatural into the world are, are faint echoes of. Uh, It is worth paying special attention to the manner, as you read this chapter, paying special attention to the manner in which Lewis tries to show that the pattern of the incarnation, various elements of the incarnation, kind of show up all over nature and history. He has four or five ways in which he tries to show this. Lewis is is trading on the practice of seeing much in the beliefs and practices of the nations that contains truth. Then while mixed with error and sin, just as our own views are mixed with error and sin, man is fundamentally, mankind is fundamentally in relationship with the world of his experience when he writes myths and passes on civilizational habits, and what Lewis is arguing is that if you look at those stories and at human behavior, civilizational habit, you'll discover several things about our beliefs and our lives that don't seem to make much sense apart from us tacitly and implicitly living in a world where the incarnation does make sense. And yet the incarnation is not reducible to these themes. And this this is a crucial point to make. It does not have the character of a sort of trope about a a dying and rising God, another general story about something happening somewhere. Uh, Rather, these old and deep things become a concrete performance in history. For for Lewis, the the mythical understanding of reality, read off the page of God's natural revelation, is now a fact of history in Christ's taking up of that pattern. Given the, the length of this chapter, Lewis actually tries, Lewis actually shows with, excuse me, Lewis actually shows this with several themes in ancient paganism, that the coming of Christ interrupts but also fulfills man's traditional religious impulses and readings of things. Uh, pay very careful attention to how Lewis makes these comparisons. He's a, he's a master exegete of themes and In literature, and also later in in the chapter, a masterful exegete of of little details of of daily human life that bespeak Christian truth. In this, Lewis, Lewis continues to show that the particularities of the Christian faith illuminate the general world that we have always already been experiencing along the way. It's worth pausing here to add that this might have something to do with the truly universal character of Christianity that has been observed by, by, uh, by, by many scholars, actually. One of the things that distinguishes the Christian, the Christian tradition from other faiths is precisely that it has very little civilizational center. So, you know, if we were to talk about Buddhism or Islam or these sorts of things, we almost immediately associate it with kind of civilizational centers. See, but, but Christianity seems to speak to man not just in his general condition, you know, the experience of guilt and the need of salvation, but also in shockingly in a variety of his specific conditions. That is, when, whether one is a tribal pagan or a member of an advanced civilization or a farmer in South America, divine revelation typically contains some thematic continuity, even if inversion and reversal, relative to man's ordinary and particular thoughts. One of the most interesting things in missionary stories is how frequent it seems to be that missionaries find that the message of the gospel is illuminated by highly local and indigenous stories and mores. To be sure, the gospel still corrects sin and error, and that's, you know, again, crucial to state, but it also fulfills what is preserved of natural revelation in man. Another way of saying this is that people have, in all sorts of civilizations experience the announcement of the gospel is that which they'd always been waiting for, uh, or the, the missing piece of the puzzle, to use the analogy that I, that I used earlier. And it is this kind of thing that Lewis highlights with his several examples in this chapter. The thought and life patterns of man unknowingly bespeak the negative outlines of what is then positively presented in the gospel. Lewis spends, for instance, a good bit in this chapter talking about death, and one of the claims he develops is that vicariousness or substitution is a basic element of the real world. And so this enables him to write, quote, because vicariousness is the very idiom of the reality he, that is God, has created, his death can become ours. The whole miracle, far from denying what we, are ordinary, what we already know of reality, writes the comment that makes the crabbed text plain, or rather proves itself to be the text on which nature was only the commentary. In science, we have been reading only the notes of the poem. In Christianity, we find the poem itself, end quote. I, th- I think it's worth recollecting how Lewis is making this argument and how it might become compelling one could, after all, ask, you know, why can't we say that Christianity fits the pattern of everything just because it's another instance of everything? That is, there are lots of dying and rising God myths. Why not consider the Christian faith just another one? And so on with all of the realities that our faith supposedly illuminates. And so, so a few comments in, are in order here just by way of a reminder so we can see how Lewis's rhetorical power, argument works to be, to be an actually powerful argument. So first... Recall that the plausibility of this argument depends upon all that has come before. It is already clear that the supernatural invades the natural. It is likewise clear that there is nothing about God or nature that prevents miracles. And so in order to evaluate the veracity of a particular miracle claim, we have to evaluate them on the presumption that miracles have already been established as in principle possible, perhaps even probable in one way or another. And so second, then, Lewis' position is not that Christianity contains these universal themes in precisely the same way that they are found elsewhere. There was some overlap between the worship of the Hebrews and the worship of the ancient Near Eastern pagans, you know, they both had sacrificial systems and temples and whatnot. But what animated the Hebrews was what distinguished them from the nations, which was quite central to their religion. Uh, They had a a rather different view of the relationship between God and creation uh, than many of their civilizational neighbors. And they had their own version of sacrificial systems and temples and harvest liturgies. Uh, Similarly, a proper comparison reveals striking differences with the pagan myths. What distinguishes the gospel is precisely that they are not the sorts of sonnets of a bard, but rather a record of a concrete moment in time, a history, something that happens in the first century AD under Pontius Pilate, witnessed by this particular named person. Christianity includes these themes not to kind of one-up the pagan variants, but because it is just the fulfillment of tensions in a reality that have been religiously commented upon, sometimes quite mixed with error by other faiths. For Lewis, then, Christianity is, you know, in that sense, the true myth. You know, he's famous for saying this uh, in concert with Jared Tolkien. And the true myth that is written over all of its peculiar a true myth that's written all over its peculiar character and its influence. And so third, finally, it's worth pointing out, nevertheless, that the fact of the incarnation cannot be rationally deduced from the structures of creation that it illuminates. It is not that we look on the created order and go, aha, there must be an incarnation to make sense out of all of this. There are some philosophers, like Stephen R. L. Clark or others, who try to make a case that maybe you could make an argument like that. But for the most part, rather, what Lewis is arguing is that we can retrospectively see how the incarnation illuminates all things. That is, if we allow the deed, the the fact of the incarnation, the historical intrusion of the incarnation to illuminate our world, our world is unveiled to us in new ways. The story we've always been in becomes more clear. As we see reality at its climax, we then see the whole narrative on the way up to it more clearly. And so Lewis can write about the incarnation finally, quote, its credibility does not lie in obviousness. Pessimism, optimism, pantheism, materialism, all have this obvious attraction. Each is confirmed at first glance by multitudes of facts. Later on, each meets insuperable obstacles. The doctrine of the Incarnation works into our minds quite differently. It digs beneath the surface, works through the rest of our knowledge by unexpected channels, harmonizes best with our deepest apprehensions and our second thoughts, and in union with these undermines our superficial opinions. It has little to say to the man who is still certain that everything is going to the dogs, or that everything is getting better and better, or that everything is God, or that everything is electricity. Its hour comes when these wholesale creeds have become have be- begun to fail us. End quote. It is a fascinating comment and has particular relevance for our times. Consider how the the dismissal of the incarnation functions similarly to the kinds of readings of things that make people pessimists or optimists. On the one hand, both pessimists and optimists tend to think that their readings of things are written on the very surface of reality. It's obvious that everything is falling apart or or obvious that everything's getting better. And yet it is precisely what Lewis calls our second thoughts that suggest that things are more complicated. And it is in that mature stage of thought where we have been careful and ruminated upon reality and begun to see its various parts in kind of a synoptic fashion, uh, in an integrated flash of insight that the incarnation really comes to the fore as a central, uh, cohering, integrating piece of reality and of history, in its light, we begin to see all things as being informed by its pattern. The incarnation, you might say, is close to the heart, to the very center of the logos, that structure of things that just is patterns and illuminates the whole of reality. In the next video, then, our our last video, we'll look at other examples of miracle understood as, as lesser instances of God's general invasion of nature in reason and morality and lesser instances of his paradigmatic and central invasion of creation in the coming of the Christ. What Lewis will help us to see is that these miracles do not have the character of just kind of random magic tricks, but function as a commentary on the world and God's plans within it. Uh, But until then, farewell, and I'll see you next time.